2: Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome, everyone. This is your podcast, New Books in Economic and Business History. I'm your host, Javier Mejia from Stanford University. And today I have the great pleasure to be with Andreas Feldman and Sochil Bada. They are professors at the Latin American and Latino Studies Program in the University of Illinois, Illinois Chicago. And they are two of the four editors of a recently published book by Rutledge Press called The Rutledge History of Modern Latin American Migration. I'm very happy to be with them. We're going to be talking about the book and about their careers. Andreas, Sochil, how are you?
1: Fine. Thank you very much for inviting us to your podcast. We are very happy to be here with you.
0: Hi, Javier. Good morning. It's, it's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you so much for the uh, kind invitation. We are delighted to talk to you.
2: No, I'm very excited to be with you. I'm very excited to talk about Latin America um, and about history and migration, which are frequently uh, a topic that is together in the public opinion, but there's not... Um, I mean, at least I don't have the opportunity to bump into those two things together uh, in, in, in academic spaces. So I'm, I'm very, very glad of, of having the opportunity to talk about that. And, and before getting into the, the conversation, the book, I would like to hear about you as a scholar. I would like to hear more about your background and, and your career. Would you mind to tell me about where you're from What did you study? How did you end end up um, interested in Latin American and and migration history? Or maybe you might like to start with this, Achille.
1: Thank you. Yeah, that's a great question. I really like uh, to be asked this question because it's much related to the book as always. Like we are researchers of the things that are very dear to our hearts. So I'm from Veracruz, Mexico and my first migration was internal. It happened when I went to college. I went to the National Autonomous University of Mexico and I majored in international relations. I was in Mexico for a while. I was working, but then all of a sudden I decided to uh, pursue graduate school. And the first stop in my graduate career was at the New School for Social Research. the mid-90s at a moment when migration to the United States was like reaching very high numbers especially from Mexicans like the uh, Puebla-New York connection was very high then and as a graduate student I became a volunteer with non-governmental organizations who were um, defending the labor rights of undocumented immigrants in New York and this is how I decided to become a sociologist, and I pursued a PhD in sociology, and I went to the University of Notre Dame when I met Andreas Feldman, who was somebody who was also very much interested in human rights and immigrant human rights, also working on vulnerable populations at the border with the Rapporteur for United Nations. But he will tell you all about that. So this is how, for me, like um, my life history immigrants to this country I came to the U.S. in 1997 and I've been living in various places as a grad student and then as an assistant professor and now an associate professor in Chicago but before I lived in many other places like doing research or having like a temporary appointment so immigration has been a very fundamental part of my career. This is where like most of my research has taken place. I am a sociologist by training, but uh, this is um, why it's for me so important to talk about immigration and why this is kind of the core of my career. I do research on it or I edit volumes with Andreas or with other scholars that have to do with root causes. This is what like this book is about, like why is it that these immigrants come in a historical perspective because this is something that you do not uh, hear too much about when they like in the U.S. you hear about immigration they only talk about immigration policy they do not talk to you about immigrants or this is not as common to be um, it's not a a common topic to be discussed so this is pretty much why I am
2: that that's fantastic. What about you, Andrea? So tell us about your life before uh, bumping into Sochi.
0: Yeah, well, we met with Sochi in Notre Dame, like many, many years back, and uh, it was a really neat, neat experience because, like, uh, she was doing a wonderful study on, on uh, uh, migration community in, in in Chicago, and I just recently graduated, and and she was conducting field work in Chicago. Um, and I accepted a position here in Chicago. So she would come here and I would take her to, to the sites of, of her studies. And that was just absolutely amazing. Uh, it's really wonderful what she was doing. And, and ever since we, we we became good friends. So my story is actually quite personal in the sense that, um, so I, I come from a Jewish family. My parents were basically uh, Holocaust survivors. So both were migrants and refugees, actually. Both were, of them were refugees. Uh, um. I was born in Santiago de Chile, although I, I tend to say that I'm not the prototypical Chilean because I—it was an accident that I was born there. Uh, my parents, my my dad was Austrian, my mother was Hungarian, um, and and for instance, we spoke German at home. Uh, so I was, I was raised uh, speaking both Spanish and German, and. I went to a Swiss school in Santiago. And so even though I feel 100% Chilean, that's my, my, my background, uh, I don't come from a, from, a, from a family that is Chilean or has much roots in, in Chile. And as you might imagine, migration and migrant families and, and, and different languages and, and cultures and customs have been part of my life. So I, I studied journalism I mean, worked for a few years, and then I, I got a scholarship to come to study in the United States. And here, for reasons to study a PhD in political science, and at Notre Dame, and these are serendipity, these are just shared serendipity, one of the most nicest professors, an incredibly gifted but incredibly kind individual, was one of the leading scholars in refugee studies. So as soon as I joined the program, I started working under him, Gil Lusher, a dear, dear uh, uh, friend and and and, and um, you know someone we really looked up to. And so I decided to study, thankfully, to migration. And of course, I, I think my my personal story had a lot to do with this. And then, as Sochi was rightly pointing out, I I decided basically through this interest in in, in refugees and IDPs, internal displaced persons. I met another professor at, N- at Notre Juan Mendez, who was an, an expert in, in human rights, who actually recruited me to help him uh, in his work promoting the rights of migrants in the Americas through the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights. So one thing led to the other, and I ended up deciding to, in a way, devote part of my, my research to migration. Uh, the, 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 so is like a a much more hardcore migration scholar than I am. She has a, an incredible uh, body of research. Um, I have, in a way, deve- devoted or developed like t- several s- different um, um, agendas, and so I study also violence, and and so those things in a way come hand in hand. Unfortunately, because violence is what produces basically migration flows, uh, so. My career has been sort of pivoting between one and the other. And I've been blessed to, to have like nice colleagues like, like Sochi and Stefan, especially Jorge Duran, who's also one of our, our, our main uh, inspirations, who contributed to the book and who has been a mentor for, for both of us uh, and who has, in a way, helped us to develop and refine our, our ideas. So that's a, a, a short way, or not short way, a long way of, of telling you uh, what's my relationship with this topic that, as Sochi mentioned, is very dear to me as well, for very personal reasons.
2: I would like to hear more about that and from the perspective of how do you perceive that your personal experience as migrants has shape your work as scholars right i mean for me it's not surprising that you're telling me that you ended up working in migration because well i guess like the interest could spontaneously come from from your personal um histories but do you think that you see differently the field than others that don't have a migration history um, is that at all important in the way you, you think about the problem, in the way you ask questions, in the way you look at sources?
1: Absolutely. I think this is a very good question. I come from the tradition of international relations. Uh, because I told you that this is what I studied um, at the National Autonomous University of Mexico. So when I moved to the U.S. the first time, I joined a program in political science. And the way that political scientists viewed migration was pretty much at this um, international scale in which they were talking about these grandiose ideas in which, ideally, Like uh, international covenants of human rights are going to grant rights to immigrants just by virtue of having these very nicely written documents. And I became, I grew very disillusioned by this approach of uh, just having these international juridical scales looking at how immigrants were moving and who was going to take, who was going to rule those immigrants and this is how for me it was very important to put at the center of migration studies individuals like giving back agency to people who make these very important household decisions because i was somebody who was doing this very important household decision of leaving my family behind none of my family lives in the united states no one 100% one hundred percent of my family, my immediate family, my nuclear, my extended family, live in Mexico. I do not have family members, not in like, not even remote cousins, twice removed. They don't live in the U.S. So for me, it was, I was felt like these signs of uneasiness. Like most of the literature in my field that I was trying to pursue in New York happened to be with these. that that were very much removed from the people. And as soon as I became a a volunteer for an NGO, this is when they realized where my passion lies, like understanding how migrants organize and how is it that they acquire rights, how they realize rights by virtue of exercising their voice. And it's very interesting how they exercise their voice because seemingly they have already exit because this is what migration means. You no longer want to play with your state. You are living with your feet, you are moving somewhere else. And how fascinating it was to me to see how well these um, grassroots organizations of immigrants, they were regaining a voice, and the voice was not only being slowly, but steadily regained in the new countries of origin, but they were simultaneously trying to regain their voice in the countries they were coming from. And this is what like my scholarship has been, like this idea of the transnational connections of immigrants and how they gain their voice after having seemingly lost it when they cross a border and how they gain rights, both from the sending states and also from the states who are now hosting them in their new lives. So absolutely, the fact that I am an immigrant myself has really, really shaped how I conceive my research agenda, how I pick my topics, how I choose my collaborations, and what are, what are the types of dialogues in migration study that I believe are important to be salient in conversations like this, or also, like scholarly conversations.
2: What about you, Andreas?
1: Well, that's a very profound
0: question. I, I, I don't think I have a, a, a strictly linear answer to to it. I think it's more intuitive. I think my sense is that I, I, I have developed an empathetic uh, approach to this, sort of in a way, being mindful of. Uh, what, 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 what Sochi was mentioning about this idea of people's agency. I have a lot of respect for migrants because I've seen you know, their incredible capacity they have to overcome things. And, and that in and of itself is something very inspiring. Um, and I think that is something that, in a way, has shaped my way of trying to understand the ways in which they accomplish this. There's a really interesting debate in in the human rights community about victims and their prospects to overcome many of the abuses and and wrongs that they have endured. And among them, refugees and and migrants are the ones who have been more successful in overcoming these very difficult situations and rebuilding their lives. Um, So I think that in many ways uh that has inspired me or has in a way exacerbated my curiosity about the ways in which they accomplish this um the second element i think has to do with in a way being critical of the policies that that exist and being critical about a certain degree of inhumanity that in a way shapes many of the ways in which governments and populations in a way relate to this population because I saw it in my own family I saw the sacrifices my parents had to make i I saw that their lives were cut in a way couldn't they could not realize their potential given you know the abuses they they, they suffered and the fact that by migrating, That, in a way, undermined their prospects. My dad could not study at the university, even though he came from a really quite educated family, from lawyers and and, and judges uh, back in Vienna. And, And my mother couldn't study either, even though she came from a very sort of prominent family in Hungary. Why? Because they didn't have the language skills by the time they came and because they didn't have the money. And despite that, they were able to overcome these problems, like many other families you find here in the United States families from mexican descent and families from african descent who come here and make it somehow through their generations so in a different like the second generation in a way converges and, and and that's a very inspiring thing so if i have to to explain it, i think I, at least i try to approach, approach this whole matter from a very human perspective try to understand and try to recognize and try to reconstruct how these people actually are able to you know, overcome all the hurdles they're facing.
2: Let me try to bring the historical dimension that you bring to the conversation in the book with the migration part of, of what we've been talking about. And at least in the, the academic conversation in the US, I have the impression that Latin American migrations are usually framed... And I guess as Satchel mentioned in like the policy sphere of the discussion, right, it's like a contemporaneous issue, right? And of course, it's very prominent, the discussion on the history of migrants. But that seems to be the history of other type of migration, right? So I was recently uh, having a conversation here on the podcast with Rana Braminski and, and Lia Bustan, and they wrote this very nice book on history of migration in, in the US and and it seems that the impression of people again here in the US when they think about historical migration, it's about Europeans coming to the US. And then whenever Latin Americans show up to the um, to the conversation is about contemporaneous um, migration, right? So I guess I would like to ask you, How did you manage to um, argue in the academic community here in the U.S. that it's important to think about the migration in the Latin American context from a historical perspective, right? That that that's important, that there's a need to understand that. Have you faced any type of challenge? Is there a real absence of interest? Is that just... uh, a flaw impression. Um, what do you think about that?
1: I will say that this is a good question because when the editor, the acquisition editor in of Routledge approached us to like invite us to be the editors of this volume, is precisely because the, in the United States there has never been a compilation of a volume that will include Latin American migration as a historical process. Actually, we were trying to convince her to not do it just on history, because historians, yes, they have a lot to contribute, and it's super important to set the record straight that Latin American migrations are equally historical as European ones, including those who are to the United States, although the book not only discusses Latin American migration to the U.S., but discusses South South migration, uh, intra regional migration, etc. But for us, it was a, a very revelatory moment that it took so several convincing, several sessions of discussions with the four editors, with the acquisition editor, to tell her that yes, that we agreed, and we we saw her pain. That she was dissatisfied with the status of the literature that there has never been a compilation, historical one of Latin American migration and she wanted Routledge to have one. And we managed to convince her that yes, history was super relevant, but equally relevant was geography, politics, um, urban planning, international relations, uh, anthropology, and many other arenas that were super important to have a voice in a historical context. And this is how the volume is not only about the history, although histo- it's is a is a chronological history of what are the most important waves and moments of the transcontinental migration to Latin America and what happens. Like yeah, like mod- as as the title says, modern period <coughs> beginning in 1870. So this is why we think like uh, the question is very pertinent because yes you are absolutely right that in the United States it tends to erase the very important role that the United States has played in triggering those migrations as push factors especially like the, the chapters in about Central America in the book very well explain to what extent the civil wars and the investment of the United States in many of the civil wars in Central America played a very important role in pushing people out of their livelihoods, in pushing people out of their possibilities of being able to make a living in their in their own countries, to obliterate their right to stay home. It's all about the matter of a right to stay home. It's not possible. And they had to flee persecution and war a war that has been very much financed by the United States. So these are the type of discussions that are not very popular in this country. It's it's more important to discuss immigration policy and how we're gonna keep them out, especially post-1965 migration from Latin America. This is the one that the United States does not like to recognize what is the responsibility that the U.S. has played in having this immigration coming to this country. So I think like this, we are very proud of having had this dialogue, especially because the way that we envisioned the volume was to bring the voices of the South in translation in English, being produced for a discussion that is going to happen in the Western academia. But we were like as curators, because this is who we are like editors are curators, of voices. We were very careful about bringing this discussion of voices who have understood migration, logically, empirically, from the South, who are not only researching about the South, the global South, but they live in the global south. They belong to the academias, to the global south. So this is like what I think one of the contributions that hopefully is not lost in this volume is the voices that we are bringing together.
2: I would like to hear what Andreas has uh, to say about that, but I would like to bring an additional element to, to that question, um, which um uh, uh, mentioned, which is that, this is also a history of modern migrations, right? So, and I noticed this. I, I, I actually talk. I have to say this. So, my dad is one of the contributors to this volume, and I had the opportunity to talk with him about that. And I remember talking with him, like, oh, what it says modern. What like what what does it mean that it's like modern? Like modern. What are they trying to convey exactly with that? So, mm-hmm. uh, why don't you tell us a bit, Andreas, about like your your approach to this issue of, uh, of thinking about and signaling that the history of Latin American migrations is important in the Western uh, like academic conversation. And why was it important to make it a modern story? And I guess that probably there's a simple answer that you had to like constrain a bit the analysis and it cannot be a history since like the beginning of times. But, but I have the impression that there's some additional interest behind that the modernity dimension of, of it.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I'll start with the second one, which is easier. <laughs> it was a strictly pragmatic decision that we, in a way, negotiated with the acquisitions editor. I mean, the topic is huge. And, I mean, migration studies can be very Eurocentric. We are not talking about, you know, how migration looked like in the Americas prior to, to you know, the, the arrival of European colonizers. So... But at the same time, you know, topics need to be narrowed in some ways. And we decided that for the sake of what we wanted to basically convey in, in the project, the, the original sort of conceptualization of the project was try to reconstruct like movement in the Americas. Um, we had to basically have a sort of a, an entry point or a cut point, if you will. And we decided that it should be around 1850. And, and so... We are equating that, and probably like some people would object to this, but we are equating that to you know, modernity. Um, and if you see, like, we have divided the book into different, you know, phases, if you will. Um, and but it's important. So and now I'm going to try to, to answer the, sec- the the first part of the question, which is um, scholars, and I think the four editors understand, you know, movement as something universal. And this could be a volume on African migration or European migration and so forth, because in in essence, migration is a universal phenomenon. Um, So unfortunately, migration studies, like many other aspects in academia, especially in the the U.S., can be very U.S.-centric. So to the extent that people study migration, they study it in relation to the United States in different ways, in different shapes and forms. And interestingly and, and people like your dad in a way vetoized that there's a fascinating story about migration in Latin America within Latin America and there's a marvelous and interesting story about how that has come about or you know transcontinental migration to Latin America Japanese Japanese communities uh, going to Peru or to Brazil or Italians you know going to to Mexico or especially to the uh, to the river basin, Uruguay and, and Argentina, and I could go on and on and on, and that's the reason, for instance, why we commissioned a chapter on Arab migration into the Americas, which is something absolutely fascinating, and that you'd never find uh, much discussion in migration studies. And it, it happened to be that we have an expert in our own you know, UI, the University of Illinois system. You have an expert who does, uh, you know, Arab migration into the Americas. He specializes on Brazil. So the, the main idea behind this was, we have, we have several objectives here, but I think that the, the thread was tried to, in a way, reconstruct the enormous richness of movement as an historical phenomenon in the region, both within the region, transatlantic migration to Latin America, migration within Latin America, and then migration from Latin America to you know, Northern America. And by Northern America, I used specifically because we're mentioning, we're not just referring to the United States, but also Canada is oftentimes like, you know, simply overshadowed by, by the U.S. So if you look at the, the people who contributed, we try to, to be as ecumenical as, as possible, try to, in a way, recruit everyone doing interesting work, in different phases of this, we were able to, in a way, uh, convince a really a dream team of Canadian scholars doing migration who wrote a beautiful chapter on, on something that is oftentimes overshadowed. So I, I echo what Sochi said. The idea is to try to sort of initiate uh, a, a dialogue that, in a way, recognizes the work people are doing in Latin America, but at the same time, connecting that work with work that is being done in the United States, in Canada, and also in Europe, looking at you know, how transnational movements have, in a way, um, developed over time. So it's a dialogue between different academias, that in a way, touches different angle or, or pressure points, if you will, that reconstruct this incredibly rich story. And it was very risky and ambitious. I think uh, it ended up being a really good project, but at, at moments we're sort of thinking, "Well, will this really work? Are we going to be able to, in a way, get good, you know, chapters on this really very uh, diverse topics?" And so the last thing I'm going to say is that we were we had the fortune of working with Jorge Duran, who's really an incredibly wise uh, scholar, who was able to sort of at least guide the the initial, the framework of this. And so we commissioned basically um, four studies at the beginning of the book in which we look at this from a more structural, if you will, perspective. And it starts with Doug Massey's chapter, who provides a really incredible overview of the structural conditions that led to movement in the Americas. And then we commissioned three chapters looking at each single region, uh, sort of uh, Mexico, Central America, and South America. And so that, in a way, opens up the discussion for the rest of the book to come. And I think from a, from a strictly organizational point of view, I think the trick worked because people like Massey and people like Duran and the other contributors of, to those chapters uh, made a marvelous work in, in sort of laying out the ground for the for the book
2: but let me follow up on the, on on that specific point because I mean I, I, I fully agree with like the, your description of the project as very ambitious it's it's a massive volume it has something like 30 chapters in it like uh, I don't know like a couple of dozens of 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 contributors. How did you manage to get them together you describe your role as the one of a curator um how was that process how did you pick the people how did you manage to make them like deliver on time uh i get, can imagine that probably some of them did not and i would like to hear a bit about that um that role in particular so you're four um, editors right also just like i've been involved in projects where you have four co- authors and i i think that that's like the right number of authors is usually three like when you have four it's usually someone that is not doing something and anyways but i would like to hear a bit about the practicalities of of the process maybe Sacha would like to um add on on what andreas had just like started uh, mentioning
1: well to the contrary i kind of like set the ground for telling you how this project came to be because i am i am the fourth author who was like not doing my she was supposed to do and let me tell you a little bit about that because when I I was invited to originally for the acquisitions editor I was finishing the oxford handbook of the sociology of latin america so I was in a state of like super being overwhelmed because that volume implied like 50 contributors so I was like about to I can be done with uh, editing a volume ever in my life. But I saw this as a great opportunity for our transnational migration network that, uh, like, it's formed by Andreas, Stephanie, Jorge, and a few other scholars that have had a conversation for more than a decade trying to bring together this trans, transatlantic, western, east, west. Uh, conversations so we started like on the drawing board in Berlin uh, with, because we were supposed to meet for another non-related project also on migration a few years back prior to the pandemic and then we, we decided that we were going to start pitching the project like having ideas of the structure of how it should look like and start having conversations with people uh, that we was like our, our dream team like what we wanted to have in this volume. And they started to have conversations and many, many said no. Uh, And then the pandemic came. And then Andreas graciously said that this was a very, very important project and that he was going to not let it go. (laughs) And this is where I want him to tell you like how he uh, masterfully was able to convince so many people when the rest of the team was not convincing the ones that we were supposed to
2: convince. Tell us about that, Andreas. Well, How I think, think she's been too modest.
0: Honestly, I think uh, I, I think I, I would qualify what she said. I mean, she she worked a lot in the project. Uh, and the project was, I mean, uh, Raldaich came and offered it to her, but. Given, you know, that she's oftentimes like working on multiple projects and she was finishing this huge, I mean, if this is a huge endeavor, you should have seen, you know, the Oxford Handbook on the Sociology in, 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 in Latin America. It's, it's even, it's, 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 a, it's a monumental work. Um, so basically she's being modest because she worked all the time helping. Uh, and she said, well, I'll, I'm going to take like, I'm not going to be the leading editor but she really contributed substantially. And I think all four of us did in many ways. I think that there was a division of labor of sorts in which different people actually contributed with different things. So the heavy lifting actually was done by Jorge, who's a senior you know, scholar here. Uh, he was the one who would convince people like Doug Massey and people like Jorge Duani and many other like, big, big shots in, in migration studies who graciously said uh, that they would contribute. And they would. They said that because Jorge asked them to do. Uh, because Jorge, like your dad, for instance, has been working with him for many, many years, and he's a really beloved member of the migration community, not only because he's an incredibly gifted scorer, but he's, he's a really a wonderful human being, very generous, and everyone loves him, so nobody says no to him. Um, and then I think... In between, which Stephanie Schütze who's a professor in, 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 in the Freie Universität in Berlin, uh, she was also very instrumental in you know, securing many people who are working in Europe with, with her networks and then the people she knew, and she knows people working in Brazil. And, and then each one of us did their own, their own doing. And I think that one conscious decision we made was that we wanted basically to have different voices here and to have voices that people working in different academic locations, whether it was the United States, whether it was Europe, whether it was Latin America. We wanted people who were very senior, but we also wanted people who were like mid-career, like us, and then people who were beginners, uh, graduate students or just you know professors who are just starting, either you know, working in the United States or working in, 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 in Latin America. Um, like scholars like your, like, like your dad, who's like a prominent scholar in Colombia, whose work mostly is written in, in Spanish. Uh, we also wanted to give voice to people who actually write in Spanish and to give them the chance to, to in a way, publish something and, and to make this a collective endeavor of different voices looking at different things. Um, so I must say that authors were incredibly gracious. It wasn't difficult really. We have a few a few hiccups here and there, but I was amazed that even though this, this should have been a nightmare, and it wasn't. It was very pleasurable. And because people in a way worked with us diligently, they they submitted things on time, the quality of the of the of the you know drafts were excellent, and people developed like delivered things on, on time. So, and not only that, after we finished the book, everyone has sent, like, really kind messages, like, very appreciative of the work, and, and it has been really wonderful, and, and I didn't know many of them, uh, personally, I knew their work, but through the book, I've been sort of, you know, in, like, getting much, much more contact with them, and, and developing a working relationship with many of them in different locations, that's been super fulfilling, that's been incredibly uh, fulfilling on a personal
2: level. Basis. Uh,
0: it was a very pleasurable uh, experience, and I mean, I really mean it.
2: I'm I'm very glad to hear that. Um, I mean, very frequently I have the impression that editors suffer a lot. So I'm glad to hear that you you had a good time uh, in the process. And um, now I have a question regarding the. I guess the the process of thinking of how to bring some unity to this endeavor, right? And you already mentioned a bit the the spirit of what you wanted it to be, but it's not obvious how to bring all these contributions into something that makes sense, right? And and something that I noticed and you you mentioned already is that part of it has this um like chronologic or or like um linear perspective i guess and you have like three periods and i would like to hear a bit about why you thought that those were the relevant periods um but i also want to something that i noticed is that a few countries had um their own chapter and 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 i would like to hear like so for instance argentina venezuela um what did you think that that was the relevant choice, right? Does, like, what was the saliency of those episodes compared with others, right? This could have been a collection of, you know, like a World Cup type of thing. You know, every every chapter, every country has a chapter or something like that. Um, but you clearly didn't go that way. So tell me a bit about about that. How did you make this type of decisions? Would you like to start, maybe, Saša?
1: And I, I prefer if Andreas starts that yeah. because that's okay. the the so, final decisions were made. Andreas was. So in, in many ways, mm-hmm.
0: um, the, let me put it this way: I think we 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 try to give a sense of unity of unity to the project by, in a way, trying to illustrate important phenomena or important dynamics, uh, either. From a topical point of view, a given topic that 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 is important, or an important sort of case study that illustrates a broader trend. So, of course, Argentina, for instance, to mention an example, portrays one of the most important examples of transnational migration. And it's super influential. Uh, And that's the reason we we wanted basically to, to. have a chapter and besides you have wonderful migration scholars in Argentina who can actually make that make that contribution we had also a chapter on Brazil that unfortunately a very prominent scholar couldn't finish uh, because she had, he had some some health issues towards the end and so there are a few you know chapters that end up not being uh, possible that we initially you know incorporated into the thinking Of this. Um, Again, there are some omissions in the book, definitely. We couldn't cover we couldn't conceivably pop like cover everything. But I think we did a a really a relatively decent job in trying to, in a way, select topics that would illustrate, as I mentioned, broader trends. Venezuela is a really interesting example as well. you know, because it portrays many interesting two things. On the one hand, the golden era, which is the chapter that your dad wrote, is um, really illustrative of, you know, of intra-migration, of intra-regional migration. And then now there's another chapter or two chapters at least that in a way touch about the current migration crisis that's intimately related to Venezuelan politics and to Venezuelan dynamics, and that could not also be, I mean, it would have been a major omission. So that was by by chance in some ways. But again, Venezuela illustrates this quite well. And then, of course, there's an excess and abundance of uh, topics that are in some ways touch Mexico, because Mexico is such an influential country, and also because Mexico has created, has an also an abundance of incredibly talented Mexican, incredibly talented migration scholars. So that also is it's quite helpful in lining up, you know, the people who are going to be helping you in, in, in the sort of, in the way you thought, you know, the project would be uh, um, constructed. Um, so anyhow, the periodization is important in the sense that it also illustrates different dynamics that are quite important. And, and the Venezuelan example illustrates that. Uh, Venezuela was an important example in the 1970s as a receiving country, one of the most important ones. And, you know, two decades or three decades later, it is the most important country as as a country producing massive outmigration. So that's, that's why history is so important, because you are looking at the arch of things. Uh, movement... as as an historical progression of uh, things that are related to internal domestic politics and transnational transnational politics, frankly speaking.
1: It was very difficult to um, make a balance between topics, regions, and periodization. Again, this is why we were pushing back against the idea of writing a historical volume. Originally, the acquisition editor wanted to have a history, A handbook that was created exclusively by historians that was impossible so another example that uh of what that andrea has already spoke about others but i want to point you to uh, the caribbean for example the caribbean was super important for us to illustrate the racialization of the uh, migration so you need to make so many compromises because the Caribbean is, very, is a very complex story in, for example, Puerto Rico should have been super important to include there. We just couldn't like devote specifically a chapter on that. So we decided to compromise and include Dominican Republic as the most important and salient um, um, topic on race and how the Haitian Dominican Republic divide um, to try to understand why it happens as it happens today and how it has roots in the migration history of the region so we commissioned Marina Lisa to do a review of that in the role that Dominican Republic had had played historically in the uh, receiving in the lack of um, in integration to Haitians so we had to do so many compromises of the issues that we just could not cover in its right. For example, Central America should have deserved one chapter in Guatemala, one chapter in El Salvador, one chapter in Nicaragua. That was impossible because otherwise the the volume would have ended up being twice as long. So we compromised and put Central America as an entire region in how because of how intertwined the migratory histories in the 1970s and 1980s there are. So we commissioned a couple of scholars to do a good synthesis. Same with Canada. It was impossible to commission migration by migration in Canada. we had a dream team of the most prominent Latin American migration scholars in Canada. And we were able to convince them to work together, which is not very often happens. The four most important Canadian migration people who, don't, who does Latin America, they happen to be a group of, of um, wonderful migration uh, scholars that get along well. And they, they said, yes, this is like a, a group of wonderful women who are very prominent in the field, and they said yes to our invitation, of working together and producing a wonderful chapter that synthesizes the Canadian experience. So there were like many compromises that we had to to make to present the the final framework or the final flow of the scheme in the book.
2: Let me ask you one one final question, building up on some of the things that you mentioned, which is that this is not just a a collection of um, design for historians, right? This indeed is trying to connect that history with the present and the last section of of the book itself. It seems to try to to say something about the future of migrations in, in the region, right? and and on that note i would like to hear a bit how you think about that and and i guess you could tell me what the authors of those chapters are trying to point out but you also as active uh, scholars in the field how do you what are your concerns about um the migration challenges that the region will face in the coming years or decades where should we be paying attention to? or What are the things that we should think about both from the policy but also from the academic perspective? And maybe I would like Andreas to start with that.
0: Well, I think that most of the chapters that uh, go towards the end of the, of the edited volume in a way present a very bleak picture of, of, of you know, current conditions as far as movement is concerned. There's a really interesting chapter on, on on the incredible impact that COVID had on, on freedom of movement in the region. There's one chapter on, on Venezuela, the humongous crisis that is consuming the region. And others that have to do with uh, you know the impact of criminality and fomenting migration flows in the region. Uh, there are some you know related to you know the, the, the environmental uh pressures that, that that are in some ways uh, you know prompting major, major sort of uh, public debates in, in this matter. And then several in a way touch upon you know the policy aspect of this, how how governments are, are reacting to this in, in in quite restrictive ways. So I think when you read them together, I think they present a very bleak, bleak picture of the, the conditions that we are actually facing. Um, I think that the particularly problematic uh, is the context of migration or movement, both from the region and within the region, in the sense that we're witnessing probably one of the most critical moments uh, insofar as... um, so the twin, the twin crisis of economic and political problems plaguing the region that manifests themselves in, in several, you know, ways, but one of which is, you know, relentless levels of migration, out-migration and migration within the, 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 the countries. Um, so that will require... A great deal of imagination and a great deal of political will that, unfortunately, I think we are missing. There's no great levels of imagination nowadays uh, within our political elites and within you know other actors that, could in a way, um, have saying this. And then there's an important lack of resources that is also impacting this particular context because countries are struggling mightily, and we know you know, for a fact that when that's the case, the whole discussion around migration becomes so much more difficult. So I envision years to come uh, that are going to be very difficult from a human point of view. And we are looking at it, you know, every day, looking at conditions in, 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 in borders throughout the region. Uh, we, are, we are looking at severe crises that are going to produce even greater levels of migration, like the ones we are witnessing in Haiti nowadays. I'm particularly concerned about what's going on in Haiti that has historically, you know, produced out migration. But conditions in Haiti now are unlivable. So I envision this to, in a way, grow uh, in enormous ways. So, yeah, I... I think we're going to be for a very bumpy right in the next decade or so, unfortunately. Uh, and we need to try to think closely on ways to try to promote greater levels of accountability uh, and trying to promote levels of imagination as to how to address this uh, with a more humane perspective that takes into consideration the challenges and the predicament of these populations throughout, you know, the the Americas.
2: Do you have any take on on this, Sachu?
1: Well, I will only add that the political instability is now pervasive in many, many countries of the region, and this is only adding to the perils of migration because depending on how the political instability fares in Peru, Venezuela, Central America, in many other countries that are now, even like after post-elections in Brazil, like this, the region has been facing very delicate uh, politics lately. And on top of that, the post COVID pandemic recovery has not been the same throughout the region because every country decided on different anti- like um, the, the recipes of how they were going to deal with the COVID pandemic. So you have now all these people who are trying to flee for various reasons, and we've never seen the levels of migration uh, in terms of numbers that are not only coming to the United States, but they are doing lots of intra-migration. And that's a very new thing that that Latin America had not experienced in the past having people now that they see that the the borders are closing, people are trying to move and run in very different directions. So this is something that we need to reckon with in the future and we just don't see, I fully agree with Andrea that we don't see any political will, especially of those countries that have the resources to be able to absorb and welcome all those immigrants. They just do not have the political bandwidth or the support of their larger populations to really welcome them. And that includes Mexico, that is having more and more anti-immigrant, very concerning anti-immigrant climates from the part of their general population. So there is this dissonance of the elites, for example, trying to create a message of unity. And yes, we welcome all the immigrants. But on the other hand, you have like populations who are in the south, like getting Seen all this chaos of Central Americans trying to move towards, uh, keeping on moving north, and it's it's a very uh, complicated picture. We have a chapter uh, by Stephanie Schotze and Jimena um, Alba, who precisely try to get you at an anthropological view of what the type of violence and the um, chaos. That it's experiencing all these caravan movements and all these people who are trying to flee desperately during the COVID pandemic in Central America. So the situation is that in the in the last section of the book is not very inspiring, and it will require lots of imagination and political will to create more humane policies for welcoming those immigrants.
0: If I if I may add, for one of the few like. Uh, bright spots here is, is Colombia uh, and the way that it has reacted to, to massive out-migration of Venezuela uh, so the Colombian government has shown great great levels of imagination great levels of generosity but the thing is that that generosity and that imagination also have limits because the country is not prepared to in a way absorbing uh, more than 2 million migrants uh, that's that's a big, big uh, challenge to even the most resourceful country. Germany had a, a problem, you know, um, in a way, absorbing one million Syrian refugees. And we're talking about Germany. So, of course, the challenges of absorbing a population like Syrians in Germany, of course, are, are much more uh, complex and much more difficult given, the, you know, the cultural distance between these populations. The fact that, you know, that has, in, in, in Latin America, you know, the fact that people speak the same language and have relatively similar customs made things much easier. But don't take me wrong, and I know this for a fact because I have, you know, I, 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 I do research on Colombia. It has been a major, major challenge for the Colombian society, even with the best intentions. Uh, so I think that that goes a, a great deal into basically underlying... Or underscoring the necessity to hold, you know, governments accountable for the policies and for the practices that they introduce, and now those practices are, in a way, pushing people away. Uh, and Venezuela is a primary example of that. Uh, it's, it's a primary example of, uh, regardless of your position, people are voting with their feet, and that's never a good. That's never a good sign when seven million people leave a country. Uh, that's always something that speaks very badly on conditions domestically. There's no way to spin it, really
1: especially because the large numbers make countries to to have these best intentions and to offer this temporary status, which is most countries, that's what they are doing. But that creates this limbo situation in which the process of integration may never materialize. So 10 years from now, you will have these very large uh, thousands or millions of people who are living in another country that do not have the same rights and benefits. If not, ask Haitians in Dominican Republic <laughs> who thought that for very many, many years they will have been able to like, live under those circumstances. But unless like, uh, countries are willing to uh, reckon with the issue of integration and with offering full rights to immigrants in the new countries of, of, uh, that are hosting them, then the situation becomes very untenable because it's the issue of rights. You cannot have first-class citizens, second-class citizens. So welcoming is like the case that Andreas was presenting with the one million that Angela Angela Merkel uh, received from Syria. But this one million, not all of them got asylum. So many of them were eventually, after the long process of paperwork provision, very few made it into creating this long integration process. So Germany, kept their sovereignty right to accept as full members of the German nation, only a very smaller, a smaller number than the one that the one million that you always hear in the news that yes, Germany was very generous. And that's true. They took one million. But at the end of the day, like when you like take a closer look, this one million didn't make it as full members of the German
0: place. Yeah. And, and- this is traced by two chapters towards the end of the book, really brilliant chapters, one on, on, by Felina Freyer on, on COVID and then the other one by Luciana Gandini, who actually traces, you know, the, the movement of Venezuelans in the region. And, and, and she's precisely pointing out, who, I mean, they are, they are exemplifying and illustrating what Sochi is mentioning, the incredible challenges that people, these people are facing and the very, like, bleak predicament and bleak prospects that they have. Uh, in their in their new locations, um, and you know you have almost nine hundred thousand or eight hundred thousand you know, Venezuelans living in Peru now. Imagine, given the situations that Peru is facing, and many other countries in the region like Ecuador or Chile uh, are also struggling mightily. Domestically, And that is, you know, that in a way is even like create greater tensions to what is already a really difficult endeavor, which is trying to make sure that these people have dignified conditions in their new location.
1: And even um, the ones who have the political narrative to be able to welcome them, such as the United States, who has like this very long animosity with Venezuelan government by political reasons. They are only giving them temporary protective status. And we very well know that TPSs are like very short period of time. So I don't know what the United States is going to fix by welcoming the Venezuelans for a fixed period of time, thinking that what Venezuela is going to get out of the hole very soon in this very shortened possibilities that the US government is suffering. So those, this is why we are not very inspired by the lack of creativity <laughs> of these little band-aids that every country is trying to put for the situation of welcoming, but with this temporariness. And these limbo situations for any immigrant are not conducive to have to live um, dignified and happy lives in new, in new places.
2: It's quite depressing, the panorama, but um, I'm glad that you mentioned that and you described the complexity of the current situation because that signals very well the the need for the type of research that you're doing and the need for the volume that you compile, right? And uh, it points out how it is necessary to think about the history of the region to have probably tools to better think about the actual problems that we're facing and we're going to face in in the future. So I'm very glad I'm very glad that you put all that effort for those long years to come up with the with that volume. And and I'm very glad that you took the time to to chat about it with with us. So thanks a lot.
0: Now thanks to you for for the kind of invitation. It's really nice to uh, to have the opportunity to share like our thoughts on this, we, many wonderful questions about things we hadn't really thought about. Like, it's a nice way of sort of thinking about the project and making sense of, of the things we did. And I would add that it was a really pleasurable experience working with my co-editors. We are a group of like scholars and but also friends. We go a long way, and it was immensely pleasurable. Uh, and I mean, we 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 were able to make it. And without like much, <laughs> without many problems, uh, we are still friends, we're still colleagues, we're still collaborating. Mm-hmm. So it speaks that, that eventually it, it worked quite well. Uh, so I, 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 I want to thank Sochi, who's here, uh, for her work and, and kindness, and also Jorge and, and Stephanie, who unfortunately couldn't be here, uh, for, for their excellent work and for their collegiality. It was really wonderful to work with them. And, and I would do I, I will do it all all again you know I would uh, I would definitely do it again because it was a pleasurable experience very re- rewarding one.
2: maybe you should start thinking about the pre-modern history <laughs> of Latin American migrations <laughs> yeah, so, thank you very project. much
1: Thank you very much. It was such a pleasure to be thinking about the book with the very good questions that you were asking us.